Uh, if, if we haven't met, my name is Tony. It's good to be with you this morning. Uh, as I was just talking about, right, this is the third week of Advent, and we're focused on joy. So when Jesus is born, right, the angels declare good news of great joy, right, that Jesus is born. When we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, right, it's like, rejoice, God has shown up. And this is why, historically, actually, the church has connected the third Sunday of Advent with a particular prophecy in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 35, verses 1 through 10, right, this is, has been read for centuries on the third Sunday of Advent. I want to take a second and I want to read it to us. Now, wherever you are, I just say I invite you, and maybe this will feel a little risky, but I invite you just to close your eyes and just listen to the emotional language of Isaiah 35. This is how it reads. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak knees and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong. Fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame man shall leap like a deer. The tongue of the mute will sing for joy. And the ransom to the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy. Sorrow and sighing shall flee away. That's Isaiah 35. Have you felt that language? You know, sometimes it's hard to enter into a text and like feel it. Verse 1, right? Glad, rejoice. Verse 2, rejoice with Joy. It's like if you didn't get it at rejoice, now it's rejoice with joy. Verse 9, you have deer leaping, right? Out of joy, you have song sung in joy. Verse 10, everlasting joy, gladness and joy. Right? And what's the reason for all this celebration, all this joy? It's that God is going to come and He's going to transform both our hearts and everything, right? The desert will bloom. The anxious and the fearful will be strengthened. The blind will see the ransom shall return. When God shows up, everything changes. And I want to highlight this morning, too, that God's presence comes in unlikely places. Right? He shows up in the desert, not the city. Right? He comes to the person who is struggling and brings them joy. Right? The blind the lame. Those who are maybe not having the best of day, that's where God shows up and the transformation is most evident. Right? Christmas, Jesus is born in Bethlehem, not Rome, the no man's land of the Roman Empire, in order to save the world. This last Sunday, I was uh, chatting with some folks on the worship team about that song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, because it's pretty interesting. And they were talking about how it's sort of interesting. There's this contrast, right? You have this 
robust call to rejoice. And yet, the song is sung in a minor key. Now, if you know music, minor keys are generally reserved for a little sadder songs, a little more down songs. Like if you want a song for mourning, right, you put it in a minor key. And yet, right, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel is sung in a minor key, and there's this call to rejoice. And personally, I think this is a perfect song for Advent because of this very reason. Right, Isaiah 35 is predicting a time when God is going to come, and He comes in the first century in the person of Jesus, right? We remember that. But the promises of Isaiah 35 aren't really fulfilled in their fullness until Jesus returns again to make everything new, all right? Then the desert will blossom, right? Then all these things are going to happen, and right now we're kind of in this in-between. Jesus has arrived at Christmas, but He's going to come again. We're still living in a minor key. And yet, in the minor key, in the desert, we are still called to rejoice. I remember uh, when I first started following Jesus. I was in college, and I had this profound encounter with God, and I was like, I woke up every morning kind of like, I don't know, it was probably really annoying to the people in my fellowship, but I was just like, yes, you know, God is so good. I was like so full of joy. And I would ask the people in my fellowship who had been following Jesus for a lot longer than me, and I'd be like, so, I don't know, don't mean to be rude, but where's your joy? And they would give me this explanation like, you know, Tony, <laughs> you know, pat me on the shoulder. You know, Tony, like, when you follow Jesus a long time, right, there's a difference between joy and happiness, right? Happiness is based on circumstances. Joy is enduring. And I felt like they gave me this little lecture, and every time I'd walk away thinking, but doesn't that mean your joy should always be there? So I sort of came up with this joke that was maybe a little mean, but also really true. I started call it, calling their joy cave-dwelling joy. It's like, it's there, but it just lives in the cave of their personality or their being. And it's like, it's there, but it doesn't like the sun, right? It doesn't come out very much. Now, in fairness, after following Jesus now for I think it's been like 20, over 20 years. I look back, and now I have a lot more empathy, actually, for those Christians in my fellowship. Because there are mornings, right, when I wake up and I'm not super filled with joy. Right, there's mornings when I wake up sad or down. Right, and I can't force myself to feel joyful. If I'm tired... I can force my legs, you know, flop them over and get out of bed and go out about my day. But I cannot force myself to be joyful. Right? So I have a lot more empathy for those friends in my fellowship. Because sometimes I've experienced cave-dwelling joy. And yet I also wonder, did they ever sort of think, did they ever wonder that maybe like, cave-dwelling joy meant something. Sometimes I wake up, right, feeling a little down. Maybe you do too. I think this is a human thing. Very few of us wake up every single morning, like, smile and ready to go, you know. Sometimes life is not super easy. And I've learned that I need to pay attention to this. While my emotional reality obviously isn't everything, it does mean something. I, one of the ways I think about it is it sort of functions like a dashboard in a car. 
Maybe a little more complex. Maybe like if you're a Star Wars fan, like the dashboard in the Millennium Falcon, right? It's like lots of buttons, but all those buttons are there for a reason. And when they start blinking, it should signal something. Either something's wrong or you need to pay attention. But I think some of us, probably many of us, disconnect our emotional reality from our spiritual life. Kind of like my friends, right, in the campus fellowship. And I think many of us have known, maybe our joy is a little lower than it should be. Our hope or our love, or they're kind of running low. But maybe because we don't feel like we can do anything about it, right, we can't force ourselves to be joyful or hopeful, we just kind of let it lie there. And we can't really control our emotional reality. So maybe we should just ignore it. I know I do that. Now, in most sermons, most Sundays, right, we focus on a text and we dive into it and we try and unpack it. This morning, I want to focus on a question. What are we supposed to do when we come to the third Sunday of Advent and we're supposed to talk about the joy of Jesus and we don't feel it? What are we supposed to do when we're in this in-between time, between the first Christmas and the renewal of all things, when our emotional reality doesn't align with the rejoice call of, O come, O come, Emmanuel? What are we supposed to do then? That's the question I want to focus on this morning. What do we do in this in-between? Last week, Aaron quoted this quote. Uh, It's sort of a silly way of saying it. He read a quote from this woman named Annie Dillard, she wrote a book called Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, one of my favorites. Um, it's a secular book, won the Pulitzer Prize, really, really good book. Uh, but she writes this one line, she says this, I cannot cause light. The most I can do is try and put myself in the path of its beam. Right? You and I cannot say, let there be light, and there was light. We can't do that. We do not have that power. But I I have realized in these last few weeks, right, with daylight savings, if you go into my backyard, there are certain places you can sit, and you can sit there all day, every day, and I can guarantee this, the sun will never hit your face. And I've learned over the last few weeks, there are a few spots at particular times of the day, and if I hop from chair to chair to chair on my back porch, I can get closer to ending up experiencing the light and warmth of the sun. I can't control the light, but I can chair hop to try and get myself into the sun's beam. And what we see from Isaiah 65 is there's this connection between our emotional reality and God's presence. That when God shows up, He has the capacity to shift our emotional reality from a place of sadness to joy. Right? There's a a guy who can't speak. He enters the presence of God, right? And then he leaves singing with joy. Right? And in this in-between season, I want to make the case this morning that there are actually things we can do. Even if we can't control our emotional reality, there are things we can do to try and put us in the light and warmth of God's presence. 
where often the transformation happens. Now, full disclosure, if you're looking for something super novel, like, whoa, Tony's going to say something that's going to, like, blow my mind, it's going to be new and revealing, this isn't probably that sermon. I'm going to try and tell you things that have been tested and true both personally and historically to be those spots on the porch where if you sit long enough, you're bound to feel and experience the light and warmth of the sun. The first thing I want to focus on is the Bible as a story. Now, Barna did a study in 2019 and found this. 49%, yes, you heard that right, nearly half of all churchgoers rarely read the Bible. Now, I don't say this as judgment. I don't say this as like, get your act together. I say this because it is super relevant because the stories we live in shape our emotional reality and what we desire. Okay, friend, the wi- so I'm going to sort of wax philosophical for just a quick minute, sort of endure with me. Right? In the West, we have this thing called secular humanism. It's kind of like the philosophical air that we breathe. And if you were to sort of put it into a really tight elevator pitch, it's basically this. All human problems have human solutions. If your car's broken, take it to the mechanic. If your ankle's broken, take it to a doctor. Right? If you're depressed, go to a therapist. Right? Now, to be clear, full disclosure, I have tons of respect for mechanics, doctors, and therapists. I am in no way sort of casting aside their expertise. But we need to be aware that there is an assumption of the background of our culture that is teaching us at every moment, with every breath, that human problems only have human solutions. Now, I want to contrast this, because if you lived, let's say, 1,500 years ago in France, and you went through a walk in the woods, you would have prayed before you went on that walk of the woods that God would protect you from all the spirits that were in the woods. Right? The world was enchanted with spirits and beings. Right? They believed, actually like Jesus did, that everything, all of life has a spiritual component. Right? The secularist looks back on 1500s in France, looks back on first century Galilee and thinks, <laughs> those people are just naive. And I think many of us, without even realizing it, have bought into the assumptions of secular humanism, the story that God really doesn't answer prayers, that God doesn't really show up. So you might show up actually this morning to church, sitting on your couch, and you're living in the story of secular humanism, and you're like, oh, that was an interesting sermon, but you're not actually expecting the presence of God to show up. But when we read the story of the Bible, what we see is it is a story of God's presence. God walks with Adam and Eve in the garden. He's with Abraham, Moses, David, the prophets, right? He lives in the tabernacle. He lives in the temple. And at Christmas, what do we remember, right? Jesus takes on human form in order to be with us. He moves into the neighborhood, right? The Bible is the story of how God is present with us. And in fact, the Bible is a competing story, 
to the secular humanism we breathe every day. And this gets back to the Barna study. Because when we set aside the Bible, when we stop reading it, we actually set aside maybe the best tool we have in our arsenal to remember who God is. Right? That not every human problem has a human solution. Right? When we read the Bible, we find time and again that it is God who wants to be with us. Right? When we wake up in the morning feeling down. Right, the first step, I actually think, in addressing our cave-dwelling joy, in our emotional reality, right, after the first Christmas and before God makes all things new, is to pay attention to the story we are living in. Because living in the story of secular humanism is like sitting in the corner of my yard where the sun never lands but marinating in the story of the scriptures is like moving from chair to chair on the back porch. Right? Eventually, the sun is going to arrive if you sit there long enough. Right? When it comes to our emotional reality, what the story of the Bible consistently reminds us of is that we're not alone. God wants to meet us in our sadness and bring us joy. God wants to meet us in our loneliness and bring us comfort. Right? Some human problems don't just have human solutions. Practically, right? if, if the Bible has been sort of just a book sitting on the side that you're just like, oh, I don't want to read it, you know, I wouldn't challenge you in this season Take the next few weeks and just read the Christmas stories. Most of these Christmas stories is about God showing up in people's lives. Mary, Joseph, Zechariah, Simeon, Anna. Right? God shows up. And sometimes we need to remember those stories in order to remember in our life today living in a culture shaped by secular humanism, that God has not abandoned us, that He shows up in our life. Now, again, sort of, you know, not, not profoundly new. Read the Bible, right? The story matters. Right? It helps to stay anchored in the right story, but the Bible's purpose is not simply to memorize it. Right? It's to lead us into the presence of God. And this brings me to my second point, right? that the spiritual life really revolves around prayer. It's kind of interesting, right? When I think back on my fellowship in college, right, and the cave-dwelling joy, and all these Christians, right, who had cave-dwelling joy, I don't think that any of them ever thought, you know what, I should probably talk to God about this. It just became such a part of their reality that it never even sort of blinked on the screen of like, oh, this is actually an opportunity for prayer. Now, and, and I think, like, if we're honest, how many of us came into week three of Advent thinking or praying over the last two weeks, you know, God, we're singing a lot about joy. We're singing a lot about these awesome things. Like, how many of us thought, you know what, God? I'm having a hard time rejoicing. God, give me the joy I need. 
How many of us actually took the time to stop and slow down and come into Jesus' presence and say, you know what? I could use a little joy today. And yet, when you look to the book of Psalms, which is kind of like the prayer book of the Bible, the psalmists are always bringing prayers like this to God. Psalm 51, 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation. God, I've gotten lost in here. I, I don't wake up feeling joyful. God, I don't go through the day feeling joyful. Help me. Take my sadness and give me joy. Psalm 85, 6, will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? The, the Westminster Catechism, this is sort of a classic text. Uh, it's a catechism is basically how you teach people belief in practice throughout history. The Westminster Catechism says this. This is how it defines prayer. Offering up our desires onto God. Jesus, I'm, I'm clicking on the screen this morning to tune into Sunday worship. I have to admit, I'm not very excited kind of just doing it out of duty. God, would you take my duty? Take my boredom. Give me passion. Give me excitement. You flip and open the Bible and you feel this sense of dread, like, <laughs> I don't want to do this again. God, take my dread. Give me joy. Give me expectation. Jesus literally said in John 16, 24, ask and you will receive. Why? That your joy may be full. Jesus actually wants to give us joy. But at least in my experience, so rarely do we even ask him. I was uh, talking with Heather, who is singing right here uh, a few times this week, and she's been like in this you know, level 10 joy space for the last, like, few weeks. It's awesome. Me? I've been, like, a level two. I just have not had a lot of joy. Like, I just wake up, and I'm like, yeah, I just, I'm not feeling it. And, you know, my, like, full disclosure, my general feel is to sort of, like, sidestep negative emotions. Like, if I cannot feel sad, I will do my best to not feel sad. You know, I kind of want to avoid it. Maybe you're like that. Maybe you just like embrace and hug your negative emotions. Awesome for you. Not my experience yet. I'm working on it. But I had this experience. So I've been doing this uh, listening group with Kathy Pope and a few others. And we just take some time just to listen. And it was during one of these experiences, I had this moment where I was just very aware of my sadness. And in this moment, I just felt this kind of inclination and sort of in my imagination, I imagine sort of taking the sadness kind of like a, a ball. It was blue, you know, probably from, what's that movie? Inside Out, thank you. Uh, thank you, worship team. All right, uh, Inside Out, right, where it's like, yeah, the blue ball, right? Anyway, anyway. so I took the, the blue ball of sadness and just sort of brought it into God's presence. And I had this moment where the sting of that sadness just really decreased. And at the same time, 
I felt this profound relational connection with Jesus. It was like in that moment, I had this exchange, this moment of offering my sadness and receiving the comfort of his presence. And it was this awesome exchange. Sometimes I go back to 1 Thessalonians 5.17 and Paul says, you know, pray without ceasing. Now for much of my life, I thought this was like constant dialogue. You know, I read this book called The Way of the Pilgrim. It's about this Russian peasant who like says in his brain like all day long, like, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Right? So I tried it. You know, going about my day, doing dishes, talking to people, and I'm thinking in my back of my head, Lord, have mercy on my sinner. And like, after like an hour, really it was like five minutes, I was just exhausted. It's like, I cannot keep talking like this in my brain. So it sort of led me to, so if this is what pray without ceasing is, like, there's no way I can do it. Recently, though, I had this insight. Uh, reading Romans 1, 9 through 10, Paul writes this. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing, same word, I mention you always in my prayers. Now, I think we can be certain that Paul is not only and always praying for the Romans. He says he prays for other people. So he's not in his head like, pray for the Romans, pray for the Romans, pray for the Romans, pray for the Romans. That's not what he means by pray without ceasing. Right, without ceasing doesn't mean sort of consistent verbal or mental prayer, right? Speaking prayer every minute of every day. Essentially, Paul is saying to the Thessalonians, don't give up. Don't stop praying. But I think that's exactly what we do. Right? We live in an Amazon culture of two-day delivery. We expect immediacy, so we wake up in the morning, we feel down, and we say, God, I feel down. Make me feel better. We hold our breath for like five seconds. Oh, didn't happen. I guess I'm done with prayer. It didn't work. Tell me you haven't done that. But I think what Paul is saying to us, hey guys, prayer doesn't work this way. If we want to address the cave-dwelling joy in us, we need to keep showing up at the presence of God. We need to hop from chair to chair on the back porch waiting for the sun to arrive. As we read our Bibles, we immerse ourselves in the biblical story. I want to encourage you on a very practical level, just take a minute after you read one of those stories. Do two things. One, just identify three emotions. If you can do two, if one is the best you got, start there. I read the story, God, I feel joyful, happy, excited. God, I read that story, I feel sad, discouraged, and tired. And just take that, that emotional reality, and say, all right, God, this is me. Receive me as I am, and God, give me the joy of your salvation. Try it for the next few weeks. See what happens. Third, so we've talked about stories. We've talked about prayer. I also want to talk about something a little bit different. Maybe something you haven't considered uh, maybe as much. 
I want to talk about how actually the fact that life is embodied, that God chose to relate to us as embodied creatures and not simply floating souls, and how that is actually connected to our emotional reality, our search for joy in the third week of Advent. So often as Christians, my experience is we kind of approach life with God kind of like this. All right, like you open an envelope, right? Like who here, the last time you opened an envelope and took out the, the like contents was like, you know what? I'm going to save that envelope. That envelope matters just as much to me as what's inside of it. No one. That baby's in the trash. And I think often we actually relate to embodiment, like the soul is what matters. The body, it doesn't matter at all. And yet, when we go back to Genesis 2-7, when God forms Adam, he says this, the Lord formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Right? The text says that God forms man, man is dust. Then he breathes life into the dust, and the dust comes alive. Right? Adam, that first person's name, right, actually comes from the word Adamah, which means dirt. Adam isn't a soul creature. He's a dirt creature, animated by the breath and life of God. Right? He's, he's more like, if you sort of think in male delivery terms, like he's not an envelope with, uh, you know, a, a letter inside. He's more like a postcard. You can't separate it. Try your best. It doesn't work. Right? He's a living body, an embodied soul. I remember reading in seminary uh, these stories about monks. I don't know if you've ever sort of read stories about the early monastic movements, but they're pretty interesting. Like, these guys are super passionate, super inspiring, but some of them do really odd things. There's this one guy uh, named, he's a Syrian Christian hermit named Simeon the Stylite. And he literally goes into the desert, somehow erects a pole in the middle of the desert, and then lives on top of that pole. Who here thought about doing that in the last, like, year? Like, so weird. Anyway, so he lives on this pole. And one of the things is, right, from those early monastic fathers, they develop a theology that's kind of anti-body. So the, the harder you push your body, the more you mess it up, like, the better your soul is. And the truth is, at the Western church, we've inherited some of this anti-body theology. Right, we don't sit on poles in the desert or like a pole out in the breakers, you know, in the water, like, I'm not leaving, you know, people are bringing food out in canoes or whatever. Sorry. Okay, you know, we don't do that. But also, sometimes when we don't sleep, we eat terribly, and we don't exercise, we just assume this has no impact on our body, on our spiritual life. But as embodied creatures, right, God did not design us to thrive spiritually disconnected from our embodiment. Right? And the scientific literature totally supports this. Right? There's tons of studies which illustrate the positive emotional impact of getting enough sleep, eating well, and moving enough. 
Right? God could have chosen to relate to us as floating souls, but He didn't. The way He chose to relate to us is as embodied creatures, and this matters. Anyone who has slept very little during the night knows this has massive implications on your emotional reality the next day and on your ability to connect to God. Me, if I don't sleep enough, I am grumpy. I am not joyful. Also, I'm too tired to focus on the Scriptures or God in prayer. So it's this like double whammy. My embodiment affects my emotional reality and my ability to connect with God. And yet so often we disconnect these things. There's also all kinds of studies in neuroscience that are really interesting about how there's connections between our behaviors, emotions, and the, our physicality. There's this catchphrase in neurobiology that says, you know, neurons that fire together, wire together. So there's this study of uh, cabbies, of taxi drivers in London. And they do brain scans on them. And they realize that taxi drivers have this super thick connection in their visual spatial cortex. What this simply means is they're driving around all day paying attention to visual spatial things. And what happens? Their brain changes. It gets physically bigger when they use that part of their brain. 2014, MIT scientists took mice. They physically altered the neurons firing in their brains, and as a result, they changed the mice's emotional responses. Right? This means the habits we adopt actually have physical effects on our brain structure. They physically affect how we respond emotionally. Right? So when we go from chair to chair on the back porch, seeking the light of God's presence, we actually physically rewire our brains. When we turn to the scriptures and marinate in the stories of God's presence, we physically rewire our brains, right? And this affects our emotions. It's hard of how we get our cave-dwelling joy out to enjoy the sun. Gallup did a study this November, right? So every year, Gallup does a study on emotional mental well health. Emotional mental health in the United States. Every year, right? Diverse groups of people, diverse economics, different, all these different things they study. There was only one group in, from November of 2019 through November of 2020 that had a positive emotional experience, like that actually gained mental health. One group people that attended weekly religious services. The habits we adopt affect us. What we do actually affects our cave-dwelling joy. Coming into the presence of God actually affects our joy, our emotional reality. So what does this mean practically? Practically, it means do what I already told you to do. Stay in the scriptures. <laughs> Try and get into God's presence because those habits will affect your brain structure, making it more likely for you to experience joy. Two, don't disconnect your embodiment from your spiritual life. Maybe really practically over the next few weeks, think about 
Your sleep. What is your sleep hygiene like? Think about your eating. That's harder in the holidays. Maybe think about movement. Pick one. Right? Lean into the scriptures. Pay attention to your emotional reality. Offer it up to God. And then maybe pick one element of your physicality and focus on it over the next few weeks. See if it, those things together might actually help your cave-dwelling joy to come out and enjoy the sun a little bit. So this morning, what we've tried to do is focus on a question. What do we do when our joy is dwelling in a cave deep in our psyche and we want it to come out a little bit? Right? What do we do with our emotional reality in this in-between? Jesus has arrived at the first Christmas, but not all things are made new. Right? We're trying to live and sing rejoice in a minor key. How do we do that? Life isn't simple. It's not easy. 2020, if it's taught us anything, is that like curveballs are possible. Right? You can't just flip the switch from sad to happy or hopeless to hopeful or lonely to comfort. You can't just switch it like a light switch. But we can be a people who pay attention to the emotional dashboard of our lives. We can be a people who marinate in the story of the scriptures so that we can expect the coming presence of God. Right? We can be a people who don't give up on prayer just because God didn't answer our prayer at our whim. Let's be honest, right? He is the God of the universe. How pitiful a God would He be if He responded to every snap of our fingers? Let's keep showing up. Let's not ignore our bodies. There's a connection between our embodiment and how we relate and connect to God. Right? Even if we can't control the light, right, we can stand in its beam. Even in these rainy days, right, we can try and find those little patches of sunlight on our back porch where God's warmth and presence are. Right? Isaiah 35 said it is at that place of encountering God's presence that we are transformed, that we experience the joy that we often seek. I want to invite the worship team back up. We're going to do um, just one more song. And I just invite you, wherever you are, uh, at home, sitting on your couch, whatever you're doing, I just invite you to take an honest moment just to be in the presence of Jesus. Maybe this is the first time you're going to think about sort of that cave-dwelling joy and be like, oh, this is uncomfortable, you know? Or maybe you've been super excited and joyful and God's like, yes, and you just want to turn back and say, God, thank you for your goodness to me. Let's just enter His presence. Let's just calm, calm our minds for a second. Slow down into our bodies. God, we ask you to come. God, may we be a rejoicing people. May we be a people that are saturated in the story and expectation of your surprising presence. God, may we be a people that don't just try and do it on our own. We don't just pretend like, oh yeah, I just can solve this or I can pretend it doesn't exist. God, let's be a people that are honest and come into your presence 
Lord God, give me the joy of your salvation, as the psalmist said. God, may we be a people who choose to relate to you how you chose to relate to us, right? You chose to give us bodies. That's how you chose to relate to us. And you say the Holy Spirit dwells actually within our whole, in our physical bodies, God. God, that's a mystery we'd love to unpack and sit in. God, reveal to us your presence. God, we want to be a joyful people. We want to be a hopeful people. We want to be a loving people. Come, Lord, make it so. God, you are the transformer. You are the primary mover of all things. You are the one who renews the desert. God, may it begin in us today. Come, Holy Spirit. You are worthy. Your grace transforms, God. Be with us. Move among us that we might know you and your transforming power today.